Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 96 of Groove, the No Treble podcast, which you can always find at notreble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. Who are you and what do you do? I'm Steve Longo and I play the drums. Perfect for a bass podcast, don't you think, Steve? I do. It's a, the rhythm section is everything to me. And w- what else is there? It's like a hand and a glove. So the real truth behind my deep desire to have this conversation and my apprehensiveness to have this conversation is you have a longstanding relationship with the infamous, legendary, one of my favorite players, one of the reasons I picked up the bass, John Entwistle from The Who. And John's got a new album out, even though he hasn't been around for about 20 years, called Rarities Oxumed Volume 1. And you are the caretaker for his work now. Talk a little bit about what this is, who you are, and what brought us together, Steve. Okay, we'll go back to 1987 to a NAMM show at McCormick Place in Chicago. I get introduced to John Entwistle by a, a mutual friend, I don't know, John, just to cut through a long story short, I said, you want to jam? And he said, anytime. So I said, okay. And I go on the NAM floor and I'm finding out who has the biggest jam. And it was Kramer in 87. And I went, I said, I play with John Entwistle. We'd like to play tonight. And they said, oh, they were just went nuts. So we played and we were there with my band which we used to cover the who when we were kids. So we knew live at Leeds backwards. I mean, we knew. All of it. John had no idea where we were going to jam. I just rang him up at his hotel and said, I've got a jam set up for us. And he said, okay. And picked him up. We went to the Vic Theater in Chicago, which is a proper theater. And we went into the dressing room and he said, what are we going to play? And I said, yeah, we'll just play some Who songs. And he said, I don't know any. And this was 87. So I said, don't worry, we'll teach him to you. Long story short, we walk up onto a stage. He's expecting to go to like the limelight or some jam with little stage. And we're full lights, full production, full everything. And we launch into summertime blues or whatever. And, and we knew these things cold. So when we're going through them down to the dressing room, he said, you guys even learned the mistakes. <laughs> Which very end whistle. And that's. What started it all, we played together that night, no rehearsal, no anything, just guys, you know, let's throw down. And in fact, I have video that someone shot of the first notes I ever played with. And we became fast friends and it just took off from there. So later in 87, we were asked by Kramer and K-Rock to do a rock and roll up your sleeve blood drive. So that we brought Ed Whistle in and he actually, he played bass in Rat Race Choir. The bass player sang and we did, I don't know, 20 dates. We did it. Well, you know, I said, listen, since you're here, how about playing a few more gigs, which we did. And that's kind of cemented our relationship as a rhythm section because it felt so good. And damn, it was a musical love affair from that point on. And you joined the John Entwistle Band, which was, I'm guessing, a band that he would put out on the road in between stuff that was required of The Who. Is that basically what was primarily happening in terms of professional well, relationship? after we did the tour with Rat Race Choir, he rang me up and said, 
that he asked me, um, because he saw that I organized all the tour dates and I, you know, I, at that time in my life, I was trying to obviously keep myself in the business. So I had to develop some new skills and I have a lot of good relationships. And so I was able to put this mini tour together with all the right equipment and this and that and the other thing. And he liked that. And the night that we played, he gave me a copy of The Rock, which was his solo CD or whatever. It was attempt at a band situation in 85. I think he recorded it in 84 and 85. And Zach Starkey played on that record. So he called me up and he said, listen, do you think we can put a tour together for The Rock? And I said, yeah, we can, but I don't think we can call it The Rock because it's going to have to be qualified by featuring John Entwistle, which is two lines of text instead of one. Let's just call it the John Entwistle Band. That had Devin Powers, Henry Smalls, uh, Tim Gorman, who was one of the keyboard players that went through The Who, myself and John. And we toured North America. Canada did that whole thing. It was a lot of fun and we enjoyed playing together. So we became like, it's weird because we became kind of like phone call friends. He would call me up with jokes. I mean, we just, it was a, f a friendship that evolved out of a musical compatibility. It's not that I am not impressed by the fact that he's in the who, but if we're playing together, that doesn't enter into it. I'm not, oh, wow. I'm playing with a, the bass player I should be playing with. And I think John liked that I wasn't cautious. I'm going to be who I am. You be who you are. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And it worked famously. And so we became partners in Bits of Talent, which was our, we formed a company. And the idea was for us to do musical things, right? Aside from The Who, because primarily John's biggest gripe was that The Who didn't tour enough. He wanted to be out there playing. He, as he used to say, He'd play the opening of an envelope if his fans were there. He had this deep desire to get out there and really do it. And not that he wasn't really doing it with the who, because he was, but he wanted to do more and he wanted more of the vicious, reckless abandon of the music rather than, as he called it, the tidy songs that came after Mooney. It was truly a match made in heaven because it was based on trust. It was based on mutual interest. And I remember saying to him, we should get somebody to manage us. And he said, no, we'll manage ourselves. Gene Cornish told me that's the kiss of death. He said, all right, well, then you'll manage us. And there's a long story there too. Long stories are great for this show, Steve. I'm curious about just setting the stage a little bit here, which is at this point, you're saying we're phone friends and we're doing all this stuff, but it gets more intense, I guess as it gets closer to his passing, because at the time, from what I would know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, this is based off of just reading stuff and being interested in The Who, he passes in 2002. The band around that point was getting a bit tired of touring, but they felt the need to tour for financial reasons. In particular, Pete Townsend is known as saying, we have to help John and Whistle because he's had a very uh, affluent lifestyle. Maybe he was spending more than he was like, I, I don't know what the story was. But it gets to the point where he unfortunately passes 2002. So we're talking past 20 years now. You obviously have an impact on him and his family because they actually ask you to write his eulogy. So can you walk me through the space between we're phone buddies and we're co-managing this little side thing to being that much a part of his family? Well, that's exactly what it was. It became like family, for lack of a better word. It became like brothers. And I guess that was a mutual need. John was an only child. I had a brother eight years older than me, just like John was. 
but I had no relationship with him. And John was very willing to be less rock star, more human being with me. And so we had a dialogue that I don't know. I, you know, I can't speak for anybody else, but we talked about very personal things and we grew to trust each other. And I was left with the responsibility of trying to keep going. The thing about the financial thing with John, you have to understand something. <laughs> he had more assets than you could ever want to have. The problem, and Pete said this to me, he said, when things started to dry up, Roger and I downsized and John didn't. And, you know, I lived at Corwood for a lot of years and it was 40,000 pounds a month just to keep the lights on and the grass cut. So when you're making millions of dollars, and this is the story for any musician, it just has less zeros for some than others. If you're spending what you're making and then you stop making it, that's going to lead you to a compromised place. It is not fair to say that John Entwistle was broke. It is fair to say that in order to continue the lifestyle he was accustomed to, he needed to earn more money. And the truth of that is we worked on the phone together on a lot of stuff. I turned him on to MIDI, which was easy file to send back and forth. I got him a PV cyber base and we were composing online in like the nineties. So he said, you know, we should do movie soundtrack. And because when we did went exchanged all these demos, which is kind of how this record came about, there was all sorts of stuff. And if you're John Entwistle and you want to do somebody's movie soundtrack, that's probably going to work. And the funniest thing he said, I said, well, right, what do you want to write? He said, I want to write a car commercial. And me, meaning Led Zeppelin's rock and roll got used in that whole Cadillac ad. Right. And so I knew that, look, there were financial concerns there. You own a 53 room mansion with uh, all the, the acres of land and the people that have to be there. It's daunting. And John was, I don't want to say that he was trapped by that lifestyle. I'll say that he felt an obligation to his fans to continue that lifestyle. Very different than somebody who has to be a rock star because John enjoyed just being John as much as he enjoyed being the bass player of the Who. Talk a little bit about his passing. When he passed, he was in a hotel room, Hard Rock in Vegas. This was the night before, I believe, was a Who tour. Mm -hmm. Were you surprised? Is it a cautionary tale? You know, let's just talk flat out because there's a bunch of misnomers about John and Cocaine did not kill John Entwistle. John Entwistle's lifestyle for 57 years killed John Entwistle. Every piece of fried chicken, every can of beanie weenies, every Winston 100, every Remy Martin, it all attributed to it. And the problem was, and the thing that people don't understand, if on that day he was down in the gym working out, which not a pretty picture, but if he was, he would have had the same heart attack. But John was not one of those rail after rail after rail guys. He was a very controlled guy. And I remember my first trip to England, there was some things around, but he had a deadline. 12 o'clock, it all stopped. Very controlled life. I've seen him be out of control. But for the most part, he was not somebody that was reckless in that way. I saw somebody say the thing that he thought made him faster ultimately killed him. And that's not true and not even close to true. 
Yeah, I think more often than not, the lifestyle gets you. And it gets some people earlier than later. And it impacts some people in a way it doesn't. And I think if anything, COVID demonstrates how true something like that is. You kind of don't know when it's going to land. But this is not a person who lived soft. He lived loud and he was a rock guy. He lived, yeah, uh, Ringo called him Mr. Loud. So, yeah, he did live loud and he lived big, but he also knew how to retreat from that. John loved living. He loved playing music. He loved what he did. He loved the involvement. And so I think what happened with the cocaine, not to belabor the point, but cocaine that you might get in another country might not be the same thing that you get in Las Vegas. So maybe it had a little bit more of an effect on him. But as I said, he had major blockages, three major blockages to his heart. He didn't get those from Coke. He got them from cholesterol and shot from whatever else. And so, okay, he decides to do a little nip and has the same heart attack he might have even had without doing any of it. And that's the sensation. So let's blow that up. Since then, you've done a documentary, An Ox's Tale. There was The Ox, which was an authorized biography by Paul Reese. It would not be silly to assume that there was this body of work that had not been fully released or done in a comprehensive way. And here we sit with Rarity's Oxum Volume 1. Can you talk a little bit about what this was and what it entails? I know Chris, John's son, was a little bit involved. Who was the lead of this idea? Who felt that this had to be released? How important is this work, Steve, for the world to hear? I think the fans other ones because for years they would say to me is there anything you haven't released is there anything we could hear they knew we recorded 60 or 70 live shows and no two shows were the same it was different performances and especially over the multiple years that we did the recordings so there's a lot of oh there's some end whistle solos out there you know we used to do an exchange solo in shaking all over where he'd play i'd play he'd play. and it was never the same twice So if you didn't see it on Thursday, you didn't see that. You might've seen it on Friday or Wednesday, but it was just complete reckless. Let's go nuts. And it was either chalk or cheese. Sometimes it was amazing and sometimes not so amazing, but he liked the risk. He liked just being able to go nuts and, and see the reaction on, on people's faces when they watched it close up. As for me. The position that I took over the years, I mean, John and I, we were friends, the same kind of friends when he was out with the who we had that relationship and we were always talking about what we would do next. And like I said, he wanted to do soundtrack stuff. So we started doing a bunch of that. And it was just, John had to be busy. He had to be doing music and he had to have a purpose. We wrote a song together called endless vacation. And the chorus is nobody told me life up here an endless vacation. Hope I get old before I die. My, my, my degeneration. John would have toured year round if he could have. And I think the John and Whistle Band gave him that opportunity. I mean, it wasn't who touring. We weren't taking private jets everywhere, but he loved to play and we loved to play together. And when the fans had been asking for something for years, and I had a couple of things that we did that 
we never released. And I had alternate versions of songs from the album that we did release that, in my opinion, were much better versions. And I said, you know what? I don't know how many people ever got the Vampire's music. And I said, let me take the best of that and put it on there. Let me take these alternate versions that we had that some of them are just hysterical. And then let me put some live tracks on there and give people a good cross-section of John Entwistle. Because it's not a John Entwistle band record. I wanted it to be John, not really a solo album, but his fusion to everything that we did, which was immense. And so what's the conversation? Are you speaking to the kids? I don't know if there's wives, ex-wives. What is the trust that you have to speak to to decide if this is going to happen? Well, that would be just Chris and me. Oh, just Chris and you. Okay. Yeah, just Chris and me. And Chris, he's like my very little brother. (laughs) And we've connected on projects over the years. I never wanted John to just fade away. He's way too important. And in his lifetime, I don't think anybody really realized, unless they were aficionados, just how important he was to that sound. I'll watch a video and you'll hear a solo and they'll turn to Pete and he's playing rhythm guitar. And it's like, what? I love Chris like family. We talk regularly. And everything that I did, I did with his knowledge. It's just out of respect. It's his dad, no matter... How good a friend he was to me. That's Chris's family. He's given me pretty much autonomy to go and explore anything I want. But I feel like I have to be careful. I don't want to just do a bunch of craziness. So I thought long and hard to get to this part. And I called him up and I said, listen, I've got some material. The fans are going a little crazy. You know, it's been 20 years. They want to hear some of this stuff. What do you think? He said, are you all right with it? I said, yeah, I'm fine with it. And he said, go for it. Just to, have you seen the album cover? I have. Okay. I called Chris up, made the deal, obviously, with Deco Entertainment, which I couldn't see happier about. Fantastic group of people, and they are digging into this like old school 70s. I love it. I said to Chris, I want to expose all this crazy stuff, but I need a title. And he, without missing a beat, he said, Oxoom, which I didn't even have to think about it. Because if I had said it, it might have been a little off color, but it was Christmas said it. And I said, man, if that isn't the DNA answer, I've never heard. Because that's what John would have called. You liked this dark humor. He liked it being very tongue-in-cheek. It was his characteristic. He played it very straight, very similar to my style of that. Straight, a bit sarcastic, a bit dry. That was him, for sure. But, and that was the fun about touring with him. Because we were on a bus. He loved the bus. He would take the back lounge and just set it up the way. And he was just as happy as he could be back there. It was like pirates out on the high seas. And we'd start telling jokes and we'd start doing this. And the thing about John is when we would get ready to go out, the first truck stop we got to, he would collect as many videotapes. And it was all the Battle of Britain and all this war stuff. So nobody got any sleep. He loved that stuff. And then he used to play games. He used to love to play mind games on the bus. We'd be sitting there because you tell all the jokes, you tell the stories, and then you're just sitting there, right? And all of a sudden he'd go, rock stars into faith. Say, what? Pike and tuna turn. And he'd go, and then it would start. And it was 
Stingray Charles. I mean, he was just, he'd come out with one thing after another. He was so funny and clever. But then when he ran out of names, when he couldn't think, think of anymore, it was rock stars into diseases because he had been thinking about that for five years. He loved that. Think the friendship between us. I think it was just observed by everybody. And when it came time for the eulogy and the memorial and the funeral and all that, that was surreal because I had been used to not seeing John for months at a time, talk to him every day or every handful of days, but I'd be used to not seeing him. But this was like, it was unreal to go through that. And when it was actually Bill Kerbishley who called me up and asked me if I would read the memorial. He said, the boys, meaning the band, and John's family think that you're the one that should do it. That's better than any gold record or any Grammy or anything else. When you get the honor of sending the greatest of all time into the sweet by and by, that's, that's amazing. That's just down to our friendship. It's down to what we did and how we did it. And we were having fun together. And the thing about John was he wanted to have fun. He didn't want his own dressing room and he didn't want it to be sequestered from everybody. He wanted to be in that band situation and he loved it. It's amazing to think that John played with drummers like Keith Moon and Kenny Jones and Starkey and you and Ringo Starr. I mean, it must be interesting to just hear your name even alongside those luminaries, let alone the fact that this is a band that we could definitely point a finger at and go British invasion, change the face of rock and roll. I'll tell you a funny story about that because it is, there's a piece that was edited out of Ox's tale, the documentary where he talks about all the different drummers, talks about Mooney, talks about Kenny Jones, talks about Zach, talks about Simon Phillips, and then talks about me. And I remember the first day for the 88 tour, which was the rock tour slash the first John Entwistle band tour said to me in the studio, he said, who's your favorite drummer? And I said, Barrymore Barlow. If I had to pick a guy, it'd be Barrymore Barlow from Jethro Tull. And he goes, oh, good. Cause you just replaced him. And it was like, what? And it was true. I, I read it somewhere that he was using Barry Barlow. So that in itself is as surreal as any of the rest of it. It's crazy to hear my name in there. The other part of the who that I always had to reconcile one was i was a fan of the band before i had ever played the bass and then when you start playing the bass yes there's the jacko pastorius and the billy sheens and the getty lees of the world and jack bruce's but there's just john entwistle he was always a person that i very much would follow and listen to which makes you listen to the who or watch the who in a different light and when i think about this band the uniqueness of it when you think about roger daltrey singing pete townsend on guitar Keith Moon in that particular lineup on the drums and him still being this big character, it was almost impossible for him to really be in any form of spotlight with the noise these three were making. And I'm not saying he didn't, but he really was the background person in that band. It was Absolutely. crazy. And that's another reason that I took on the task of making sure that he was the most underexposed member. Exactly. Of Great work. He was, and people don't understand how much of a contribution uh, there, there was no who without John Entwistle. That's just the way it is. What he did, and I've talked with Pete about this several times, what he did 
was he changed the whole face of bass guitar. He changed the face of everything, how it's used. And I remember I made a joke to him because you, as a bass player, you must know the round wound string story with sure. Roto sound. But tell the story. We're on the bus and I think they're watching Seinfeld right on the TV. And the bumpers, you know, that. And I said to him, I said, do you realize that without your round wound string innovation, that wouldn't be happening? And he says, you're blaming that on me? <laughs> totally. That whistle. Man, it was glorious because there was a lot of duality there. You had to know. There, it's not like I was just walking in there and totally disregarding that this was John Entwistle. But those were more moments of like, oh, you know what I mean? Rather than it was just me and I was used to playing with great players and it was just me playing with a guy that I thought I should be playing with. Obviously he thought the same thing. It was an amazing journey, no pun intended. You mentioned Ox's Tale, the documentary. We started that when he was alive and he named it an Ox. He shouldn't be a footnote. The guy was amazing. He was the Jimi Hendrix of bass. Can you talk a little bit about that, Steve? I, I would be remiss if we didn't just talk about as a drummer, when you're playing with a bass player, typically when we talk about bass players, we're looking at two beasts. One beast is the beast that sits between the drums and the rest of the band. And then we're looking at usually then players like your Victor Wootens of the world and others who recognize that this instrument could be more that it can do the job of connecting the pieces, but at the same time having a lead. I don't think that happens without the work of John Entwistle, probably one of the first, if not the first, to really push it in that limit. But talk about just his playing style also in relation to how it changed. It changed so dramatically, even in watching the documentary to when his life ended, his style kept evolving and changing. He was all about that. He was all about the gear. He was all about the sound and he would sit there. And one of the things that I have, which is going to be so much fun for me to share on volume two, when we decided we wanted to try writing soundtrack stuff or whatever we were going to try to do, because that's what he was about. He was about create, 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 which is why he did the solo album because he had more in him than was being set. But when we were trading tapes back and forth, they were dads. So it was pretty good quality. I have these experiments that he was doing, different playing experiments. And he was all about these different finger techniques. And you can hear on these tapes that I have, he's trying different things. And because I played with him, I recognized those things coming out in his playing. When I started talking with Charlie and the guys at Deco, and I realized you know, there's a platform for this. And it's been a respectful amount of time. It's been 20 years in the line of legacy. This should be in there. I've got songs that he started to write. I have his demos of songs that he did write. There's so much richness there. And it's not just somebody noodling around. The guy was just, he blown my mind. And I played with him for 15 years. It gives me the opportunity to do what I would have done had he still been alive. All right, John, I'll put some drums on this and then we'll write some lyrics and we'll add the rest of the stuff and it'll be whatever it is. It's legacy. I don't consider myself the keeper of the flame, but I'm maybe the keeper of the flashlight and I'm looking into the darkness to try to light it up a little bit with the other things that he did. 
was a genius. This is a great story. Maybe you've heard me tell this before, but there's a song that we did called Sometime. And I sang the song and John and I wrote it together. And we were about to record it in the studio the next day. And how it would work is Bobby Pridden and I would start set up because he was engineering, I was producing. And John comes walking into the studio at noon, which was his call was for noon. And he goes over to the keyboard player and he has one of those, one of the little, not the big writing tablets, but the ones that are about this big booklet, five staves in it. And he's got whole note clusters written. I think there's eight of them. Yeah. And so he says to Alan, the keyboard player, play these. Alan looks, he picks out the notes, he plays it. It's a terrible chord, horrible chord. And then he says, all right, let's hear the next one. And he goes and he plays, and it's worse chord. And so he goes through these eight chords and I'm saying to myself, this sucks. And I'm about to say, John, but then I said, no, nah, just don't get caught in that trap. There's more to this than that. So Alan learns the chords and the guitar player, we all routined the thing. But when he added his bass in, when he played the bass note, all of a sudden it was such classical musical theory genius that I was like, first of all, thank God I didn't say anything. The thing was written in pencil and he did it in his head while he was laying in bed. He just heard this amazing set of clusters and it's in the beginning of that song. Every time I think about it, I wish I had that pad because it was so mind blowing when he came down and just did that all in his head while he was like, oh, I have an idea. And that's the way he was just brilliant. If I can turn somebody on to that, then uh, that makes me very happy because I got to see some amazing stuff and people should know about this stuff. Did he ever talk to you about what it was like to bring songs to the who or what was being accepted or rejected? We could look at the legacy and it's impressive with my wife and Boris, the spider and whiskey man and doctor, doctor. But these aren't still, if you said name five songs from the who we're going to get, won't get fooled again. Who are you? My generation. We'll get O'Reilly. We'll, we'll go through all of them. Did he have a lot of songs? How did he explain what was going on there with his music and the who? When I did the movie, I talked to Chris Stamp too. And so Chris gave me some insight there. I mean, managers, Pete, but Pete was turning in the stuff at that turn and he defined that sound and the whole thing. John was getting songs on records, but he wanted to sing his song. And that was a main problem. And for Trick of the Light, I don't think Daltrey wanted to sing that song, according to John, because of the subject matter or whatever it was. And John wound up saying, but that was the thing. He didn't get enough songs on the records because of a multitude of things. Pete's a genius and he's a brilliant writer. And what John and Keith did to his songs made them complete. John used to complain. Yeah, he would quip all the time. Oh, this says end whistle. It must be a B side. And there was a certain amount of resentment there that his material wasn't I don't want to say more appreciated. The pool of writing was so deep, it's sometimes hard to get great songs through. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah, way deep. I mean, that's the way it worked. He was the second most prolific writer. I don't think Mooney and Roger did very much. He wasn't getting enough songs on Who albums, which is what made him go and do whistle rhymes and smash your head and rigor mortis and so on. 
But in 2000 or 2001, Bobby Pridden came to me and said, do you have a copy of the Vampires album? Because we had done that. And I said, sure. He said, well, Pete wants to hear it. And I said, oh, okay. And so I gave it to him. And apparently Pete rang John up and said, would you guys be interested in submitting some songs for a possible new pool recording? And the fact that he asked for us both was talk about getting your mind blown. And it was very telling. The way John explained it to me was he, he wants us to submit seven songs and they'll use up to four. So there was a pre-calculated percentage of whatever it was. He wrote some, what I think and what John thought, we wrote some killer stuff. Uh, the demos are shaky because they're demos. But I think when you hear the songs and what the lyric content was, because John was very, he had changed his tune. We had to write for Daltrey's voice. That was the thing. And we had to write the subject matter that was fitting of the who. Because if you know Bogeyman from that one, that was written for the who. It's Keith Moon playing drums on it. And when John brought it in, they said, nah, it's too humorous. And they never used the song. And back on the road, same thing. That's him and Kenny Jones. Originally, I replaced the drums because that's what John wanted. But there are so many demos that he made that just didn't get picked up on, whether it's Roger didn't want to sing it or they didn't like, you know, whatever it was. And, and he was frustrated by that. He believed, as I do, that he was a great songwriter and he should be heard. When people think about the who they think about, Pete Townsend had a crazy solo career, Roger Daltrey to a lesser degree, but still quite significant. But 1971, Smash Your Head Against the Wall, he was the first member to do a solo album by a long shot. And I'll tell you what, I remember when that album came out and I thought it was going to be him and Keith Moon going crazy. And it was anything but that. And I don't know that I got it at the time, as same as I did after years of living with it and understanding where it was going. And my only regret is that we didn't play any of that stuff. Um. Only thing we played from his catalog was Nightmare. And we used it in the middle of a song. We were going to Woodstock. Terry McBride, who was our staff photographer, he played it for my wife, who was riding up to Woodstock with Terry and our assistant. And he played Nightmare. And Lori said, man, why don't they do this? I had never heard it. And they played it for me in the parking lot. I said, John, we have to do this. And we did. And we did it in the middle of put a bunch of stuff together just so that we could do that. And incredible. Maybe he was too clever. I don't know. I would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about the personality that led to him also being a major bass collector. The clips in an oxtail is enough to make me go crazy. I had a great conversation with Ava Gardner, Kim Gardner's daughter bass player and spent some time with the Entwistles, a lot of time with the Entwistles as well, and talked about how John gave her bass to play and things like that. I was wondering what happened to that collection. I noticed a note somewhere saying that essentially it went to Sotheby's at an auction for tax purposes. Did the whole collection go, Steve, well, or is there some goodies somewhere? Yeah. No, no, it all went. And rightfully so, because there's nobody left to understand or appreciate what that collection was. And if you think about what it fetched at Sotheby's, I mean, just Frankenstein alone, I think, went for 80,000 pounds. That's not a guy who has financial problems. If you have a million plus dollar guitar collection in a special temperature controlled room, 
you need some money, man. Go knock out a 52 broadcaster and you're good for another month. Chris, at the time when John passed, the only two close relatives was his mother and his son. And there was his, his girlfriend at the time who had been with him long enough that he decided to share some of the stuff with her. But at the end of the day, the debt, death tax in England is like prohibitive. So just to pay the taxes, no one was going to use this collection. And it wound up in the hands of some pretty incredible people, which I think is poetic rather than tragic. John wasn't going to use it anymore. And Jimmy Page got one, Eddie Vedder got one. So I think it went the way it was supposed to go. And it wasn't just basses. The collection, when we did the studio recordings, there was this one part in one of the songs where it was supposed to just be solos going out. And I said to the guitar player, we should do one solo with this guitar and one solo with that. We went up and raided John's guitar room and came down with Telecasters and Strats and Les Pauls. We're talking about primo things that he loved collecting and he collected everything, just about everything. What's crazy about it is not that he was the original bass collector, but to a certain degree at that time, and even when you look at the numbers off a Sotheby's, if you were to transform that to today, these things have become player instruments. You have instruments you would never take out on the road. This collection was stuff you'd probably never take out on the road. It's stuff that would go for hundreds of multiples. It, he was the beginning of what's become a very crazy industry of just collectibles. Getty Lee will talk about how maybe Getty Lee has picked up the torch from John in this day and age because he's definitely driving up the prices for a lot of bass players. But it's an interesting thing that when you talk about John as an innovator, he was even an innovator when it came to collecting these instruments because nobody really was like that. No, he loved collecting stuff. I'll tell you an interesting story uh, about his collection. He had a Disney porcelain Capodimonte porcelain collection of all the Disney scenes. He's the only person ever that I know of that had the entire set of Marilyn Monroe collector play, but he had every one of them. When the online shopping network happened, that was it. He didn't even have to go anywhere. And he loved to shop. He used to go to Harrods to buy furniture. Who does that? And he even had his Rolls Royce station wagon painted Harrods green and gold. He loved Harrods, but he loved shopping. He would do the craziest things, but he did it in collections. He had a teapot collection that was just, you know, humorous teapots. There are pictures of him somewhere. And he collected weapons. Military old, stuff, yeah. Yeah, but old, like knights and swords and cowboy stuff. And if you watch the cowboy movie with him, he'd say, that gun wasn't invented for another two years. He was just a stickler for detail. And he loved his collections of things. And he had the craziest stuff. But the story is, I'm down there and I'm getting up reasonably early because I have to be in the studio with Bobby. And every day, either a yellow truck, a red truck, or a white truck would pull up around the side where the kitchen is, because that's with the central hang in the place. Bigger than most people's houses, this kitchen. But that was the hang. And you'd see the guy get out of the U.S. mail or DHL or Fed, whatever it was, with box after box after box after box and just stack them up by the door and leave. And I said to him one day, I said, man, listen, I don't want to be nosy. But, you know, there's, there's in boxes coming here every day. What's up with that? He said, ah. He said, well, today, God, 
cut new suites of pillowcases for every bedroom in the house, and which is 13 bedrooms or whatever it is. And then he said, I never got a lot of Christmas presents when I was a kid, and I love getting presents. So this way, I get them every day. And he would stay up and watch a shopping channel, and he'd go, oh, let's buy that, and let's have these. And it was just, he was nuts. <laughs> Loved his show. When I think about his playing, it was really low end in the beginning. I mean, you think about things like My Generation, what he was doing in that song. And as he went on this musical escapade, this amazing journey, which I don't think is a pun, I think it's a beautiful way to remember him. Agreed. He did move towards a very treble area. He was very interested in effects and phasers and delays and echoes. And this added to collections. You can definitely see that in the documentary <laughs> and read about it in other places. Did he ever talk to you about what is the sound he's trying to chase? Did he ever express what he was trying to do with this instrument? Because he'll even mention players like Victor Wooten and he'll mention players like Jack Bruce and others. And I'm curious if you ever spoke musically about this bass thing he was trying to do. He would change the instrument. He would use different materials. I mean, he was very exploratory in trying to do something. And I'm curious if he ever expressed what that something was. Well, to a point, he was. But it goes back to James Jamerson. That was the only bass player that he ever really gave props to. Because if he Always, said he was yeah. your bass player, he'd say me, of course. Which, I get that. He was my favorite bass player, etc. There's a thing in, I think it was in a VH1 interview that we did where he said, people think, ah, you know, he's not, not that good anymore. And he would be, oh yeah, really? And he would go in and just develop these new things. Well, what he was going for with the bi-amping or tri-amping was he was trying to get that guitar sound and still maintain that bottom. The whole thing for him started with Dwayne Eddy, that and that's why he did the development with Roto sound and those strings. But he was always constantly trying to push the instrument. Let's face it. When he was playing back in the sixties, he wasn't using a rack without board gear. He was, you know, yeah, the bass was very new back then too. People forget that the electric bass guitar back then was, I mean, still very new now. So think about what it must've been back then. Yeah. Right. And Pete, talks about that. We talked about that. He said, all of a sudden he started to hold it different and play it different and barring above the neck. He used to sit there and even at sound check and he would look for harmonics on the bass and he would move around. He had the ability to move around on the stage in front of his rig and find out where the spot was that was going to give him the tone that he wanted. Basically he was just, I mean, what he was chasing was to be better tomorrow than he is today. And he did that or felt that his journey was through that combined guitar and bass sound, which he could be lead and the bass player at the same time. He experimented all the time. He had one of those loop pedals. So he'd play bow do 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 And while that was going, he'd play something on top of it. And it, neither one of the parts were bass. They were all melodic. It was incredible what he used to do and how he used to do it. Going to NAMM shows and seeing what the latest gear was and what effects he could use. Even Bobby and Pete both said, we used to show up at the first gig wondering what the new Entwistle rig was going to be. We played through a Sun Coliseum PA. 
he was constantly pushing it. And I think it was for his own enjoyment. I think he realized there was more than just the root. Boom. And he went after it, man. And he says in one of the interviews that when it asked how he wanted to be remembered, he wanted to be remembered as someone who was uncopyable. And I think he pulled it off. And I think what you've done with Rarity's Oxumed Volume 1 really speaks volumes to that thought. Because I was going to ask you, how should he be remembered? And you answered it without prompting. Steve, I can't thank you enough for taking me on this amazing journey of an artist that, again, love the music, but also just love the player more than anything. Let people know where they can find out more about this album, where they can learn maybe a bit about checking out an Oxtails documentary that's still available for people to access. Oh, it is. It absolutely is. In fact, they can probably see Ox's Tale on one of the streaming services. All they have to do is search John Entwistle or An Ox's Tale, and you'll find it plays on Hulu, it plays on Amazon. Easy to find. The quickest route to the record is johnentwistle.com. That's a website that we've had forever, and it will direct you to everything about this new record. I'm extremely proud of it, and I'm honored that I'm able to be a facilitator of getting this guy's genius out to his fans, because like I said, they've been asking for it for a long time. Thanks so much for your time, Steve. My pleasure, man. Mm.